Well, it's starting to warm up this morning. I think last uh, service, it was the only time I didn't overheat when I was preaching. So all good things seem to come to an end. But if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 2, where we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 32. This week, my nephew in Idaho sent me an interesting little link um, where he just said, the title of the link said, how long are you willing to wait? And so I, I clicked on this link and it played this video clip, which was pretty interesting. Uh, it was about the opening of the Apple computer, a new Apple computer store in Tokyo, Japan. And uh, there was a little bit of narration and some music. And uh, the, uh, the cameraman was kind of uh, scanning around, looking at all the neat buildings and then kind of focused on the Apple store and then went and you saw these people standing in this line. And then what the, the photographer did is he started walking very quickly down the line and you saw all these nice, well-dressed uh, Japanese people standing calmly, no one complaining, no one pushing, everybody was in order, and he was walking and walking and walking down this entire city block until the end stop, uh, the line stopped at the intersection. But on the other side of the intersection, there was an attendant there with a sign, line begins again here. And so he walked again for another block and then the line stopped at the end of the block, another attendant and again and again and again after like five blocks. Then there was a sign that said there's a thousand people from here to the store. Then it kept going for another block and another block. And the guy's walking the whole time as fast as he can, shining the, the camera on the faces of all these people. And then it finally ended at this one block. And then it crossed over to the other side of the street where it started going back in the other direction. And all these people were just standing there waiting calmly. No one was complaining. No one was pushing or shoving. And, and finally he got to the end where it, some man was holding a sign. This is the end of the line. And that was just to go see an Apple computer store and not even the first one in Tokyo, but just happened to be a new one in that area. And I thought to myself, look at how all of those people are waiting to just get into a computer store. Well, as we've seen in our text, the people of God have been waiting for thousands of years and it's not for the opening of an Apple computer store. It is for the coming of the Messiah. Ever since God spoke to Eve in the garden after the fall that her seed would crush the serpent's head. Ever since that day, through all the prophecies given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to David and to the, the prophets of the Old Testament that there would come a Messiah, the Jews had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, Jesus showed up on the scene some 2,000 years ago. And this is what Luke is recording for us. Life is about waiting. It's about waiting for things sometimes that we don't want to wait for. Sometimes you have to wait in traffic jams, which isn't very fun. Sometimes you have to wait for the heater to get fixed. And that isn't very fun either. But life is full of waiting. And yet this morning we see the waiting for the Messiah come to fruition. And the first days of Jesus's life as he arrives on the scene as God in human flesh. 
And as we come to the text of Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 32, we need to keep in mind that Luke has as his theme of his gospel that Jesus is the Son of Man. Remember, Matthew presents Jesus as the King, Mark presents him as the Servant, and Luke presents him as the Son of Man. And so Luke is trying to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. Of course, John will emphasize his deity in the gospel of John. But the first thing that happens is Jesus is born of a virgin. And this was prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son and they would call his name Emmanuel. This was the great prophecy and sign that God promised to the nation Israel that they would know that this person born of a virgin would be, in fact, the very Messiah himself. But there was a problem. Because Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, not in Bethlehem. There was some 85 miles difference between those two towns. And you would think, why would God pick a couple that lives 85 miles away? It's not like they had a car or a train or some tram they could quickly zip down to 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 Bethlehem. As a matter of fact, from what we learned last week, they probably didn't even know of the prophecy. All they knew is that at a very inconvenient time, but a very providential time, Caesar Augustus, the the then emperor of Rome, decreed that a census be taken of all the known inhabited world, the whole Roman kingdom. They did this to collect taxes and to figure out how much military they would need to keep people under control in different areas. And so what happened is, is during this census, it was time for Joseph and Mary to go to their town, the town of their ancestry, to register for this census. And so Mary, even in her last trimester and her final week of pregnancy was forced to make some gargantuan trip, probably mostly on foot. Uh, tradition says she rode on the donkey, but the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, we don't know how we know they were so poor. Most likely they didn't have a donkey, but anyways, she ends up getting down to Bethlehem just in time to go into labor. And she of course, tries to find a house to have her child in. But because all the Roman officials are there numbering the people and all the people have migrated there to be numbered, there's no place for them. And so they have to have their babies out, their baby Jesus outdoors. And of course, the text doesn't give us much detail. It only says that after Giving birth, she wrapped Jesus in swaddling clothes, which is a common practice, but laid him in a manger. Of course, mangers are usually found in barns and in fenced areas where animals are kept, which has given uh, rise to the nativity scenes and the straw and all of the animals, which, of course, the Bible never mentions. But no doubt... um, It was a very humble birth. It was a very humble time and a very humble place. And God then decided to announce his the the Messiah's coming uh, not to Caesar Augustus and not to the chief priests or the scribes or the Pharisees or the great politicians of the day. He decided to announce the humble birth of the king to shepherds, people who were despised at that time because they did not keep all the traditions of the elders. They had to be out in the fields, and so they couldn't do all the rituals that... 
Judaism had added to the Old Testament law. But God appeared to these shepherds in a great, uh, just uh, resplendent light. And the angel appeared and told them that the Messiah had been born and that they could find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger in the city of Bethlehem. Then a huge heavenly uh, chorus, a host, uh, literally an army of angels appeared, all praising God, saying glory to God in the highest. And the shepherds then ran to Jerusalem, looked around, asked questions, told people what had happened, and they found the baby Jesus. And they marveled. And then they returned to their flocks that night, praising God for sending his son into the world. And this is where we left off last week. And so if you have your Bibles, you can look at verse 21 and follow along as I read verses 21 through 32 of Luke chapter 2. The text says, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And so from this section of Luke chapter two, we are going to learn four truths Two from Jesus And two from Simeon. And these truths should motivate you to praise God and live in a way that is pleasing to him. And let's look at them one at a time. The first is found in verse 21. Jesus is God's salvation for you. Look at the text. It says, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Remember, God spoke to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 17 that he and all of his descendants were to be circumcised later on more information was given in Leviticus chapter 12 verse 3 that this was to happen on the eighth day that a male child was to be circumcised and the circumcision was a physical sign of the covenant. That is, it was an outward sign of hopefully an inward heart attitude that those males of Israel would be devoted and lead their families in devotion to the covenant of God, especially the covenant God made to Abraham. And we learned earlier from the birth of John the Baptist in chapter one that at this time, 
the male children were named right before they were circumcised. You remember uh, what happened in John's case. Uh, Zacharias, of course, was in the temple. The angel appeared to him, told him he was going to give birth or his wife was going to give birth to the uh, forerunner of the Messiah. And Zacharias didn't believe it. So God struck him deaf and dumb. And so he couldn't speak. And so when it came time to give uh, the name to John the Baptist as of, as after Elizabeth gave birth to him, then Elizabeth said, well, we are going to call him John. And they said, no, 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 wait a second here. Um, your father, your husband is named Zacharias. I think we should name him Zacharias. And uh, she said, no, we are going to call him John. And then uh, Elizabeth signed to uh, Zacharias, who wrote down his name shall be John. And then right then his his mouth was open. But the whole point is, is at this time, this was the custom. You had the child, you named him, and then he was circumcised. And that is what we see happening in the text before us. Jesus is named on the eighth day right before being circumcised. But Luke's emphasis here is not on Jesus's circumcision. It's on his name. He may take special care, if you look at verse 21, to say that his name was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That is the emphasis of this verse. His name is Jesus. Now, why is that significant? It's significant because before Jesus was born, before he was even conceived, the angel appeared to Mary and said, You are going to conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, which will come upon you. And when you give birth to your child, you shall name him Jesus. Later on, when Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, Joseph thinks, you know, I'm going to divorce her. And uh, that is break the Jewish betrothal. And he was going to put her away secretly so as not to shame her anymore um, for being found pregnant out of wedlock. And then the angel appeared to him in a dream and said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for she is conceived by the Holy Spirit and you shall call the child's name Jesus. So the The angel was sent by God to let both of them know the child must be named Jesus. And that is what Luke is trying to emphasize here. Why is that important? Because the name Jesus means Yahweh or God is salvation. That is why it is a name that represents who Jesus actually is. And that is no idle name. It represents what Jesus was And is even today. He is Yahweh's salvation or God, the one who saves. And there are many religions in the world. There are many religions and you talk to people and they'll say things like, oh, there's so many religions in the world. And, you know, how do you know your one is true? Well, really, you can categorize religions into two very easy categories. In one category, there is biblical Christianity, which teaches that men are saved by divine accomplishment. That is that men can only get into heaven by what God does, not by what they do. Every other religion and cult and occult and schism and ism is all piled into a huge pile of religions that are trying to earn their way to heaven. You have to do things to reach utopia or to have this, you know, a special afterlife. It's all based on man and his works and his, his need to achieve for himself some sort of, uh, um, meritous favor before God. So he can get into heaven. 
And that is what divides all the religions of the world. There is either the religion that says God does it because you can't, you aren't good enough, you can't reach the perfect and holy standard of God Almighty. And so therefore God had to become a man and die in your place on the cross after living a perfect life so that you can receive his perfect righteousness or you can be deceived with all the other religions and schisms of the world. Think you can earn your salvation. Think you can get to heaven. Think you can uh, be good enough to favor God. And many people have this idea. Well, you know, I haven't murdered anybody. I've been a pretty good person. You know, I've done a little philanthropy or whatever. It just doesn't cut it with God. God doesn't want you to be good. He wants perfect. And if you can't reach perfect, it doesn't cut it. That is why he sent Jesus into the world to live a perfect life. And what Luke is doing here is he is trying to show us that Jesus was a human child. But even from the very early days of his youth, he fulfilled every aspect of the law, even passively, because his parents were doing everything for him. Jesus in John 14, when he was speaking to his disciples, told them explicitly, I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father, but through me. And in the Greek, it doesn't just say I am a way, a truth and a life, but there is the definite article the there, which means he is the only way, the only truth and the only life. If you're going to get to heaven, it must be through Jesus. You talk to people who say things like, well, Jack, that seems kind of narrow. And I just tell them, well, it's not kind of narrow. It's absolutely narrow. It's definitively narrow. That he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. That's what the scriptures teach. God is salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. And nothing else can save you. In fact, the Jews even had this wrong. Even though the Old Testament didn't teach you could be saved by your works, they were confused because... In the Old Testament law, it started out, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they loved that verse. But then it gave the law. And then they got confused. And a lot of people, just like a lot of Christians today, think, well, I have to be good so God will like me. No. That was not true in Judaism, and that was not true. That's not true in Christianity. You do good things. Out of love for God, not to be saved. And yet the Jews had this wrong. And that is why Peter, even preaching to the Jews right after the church was established in Acts 4.12, told them, and there is no other name. There is salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven by which men must be saved than the name of Jesus. That's what he told the Jews. Of course, many then believed and were saved. But this is why Luke focuses on the name of Jesus. He wants us to know his name was Yahweh is salvation and that this was the name given to him by the angel. And what we learn from here is that Jesus is your salvation. Secondly, we learn from the text. If you look in verses 22 through 24, that Jesus is also holy unto the Lord for you. You know, Galatians 4, 4 says Jesus was born of a woman and born under the law. 
You have to remember that Jesus was a man, a Jewish man, and he was born under the law of Moses, which means he had to do everything in the law of Moses. And even at an early age, his parents needed to do for him everything that was according to the law of Moses. Why is that? Because if Jesus failed in any part to fulfill the law of Moses, he would have sinned. And if he would have sinned, he couldn't be a savior. And that is why Luke goes into so much detail showing that all the details, even from just eight days old, he was doing everything according to the law of Moses. And look at verse 22 says, and when the days for their purification, that's Joseph and Mary's purification, according to the law of Moses were completed. Now just stop there for a second. The phrase days of their purification has bothered some people because really it should, you know, you might think it should read the days of her purification because in Leviticus chapter 12 verses one through four, there was one of the laws of Moses that said that after a woman gave birth because of the blood that she was to be ceremonial, uh, ceremonially unclean for seven days. And then she could enter back into the temple. That is why babies were circumcised on the eighth day to allow for the seven days of purification. Here, the text says there purification and it could be that um, Joseph helped deliver the baby and so he need to go through the same time of purification or he could just speak to them as a couple that they had to wait it's not really a critical detail but they did wait until this time of purification was completed then they had to come to present Jesus to the Lord look at the last half of verse 22 and they brought him that's Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord Now, why is that? Well, the text tells us in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, what is this a reference to? Well, do you remember the story of the Exodus in Egypt? Uh, You remember that in the end of the book of Genesis, there was about 70 people who migrated into Egypt to escape the famine. Joseph was then ruler of Egypt. They settled into the land of Goshen. They grew over a period of almost 400 years into a very mighty nation. And while they were there, they began being oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. They cried out to God and God raised up a deliverer, Moses, who would deliver them from the bondage of Egypt. And God would do this through a series of plagues. And the first nine plagues were there to show the Egyptians that the God of Israel was greater than the gods of Egypt. And the last plague definitively showed this and redeemed them or purchased them or kind of was the straw that broke the camel's back. And that was the death of the firstborn. And you remember what happened. God told the Israelites, you know, the night is coming and I am going to send the angel of death through the land of Egypt and every firstborn animal and child and person is going to die. And I am going to redeem that is through the death of these firstborn children. I'm going to redeem you from from the land of bondage. And if you don't want your firstborn children to die, you need to take an innocent, unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, put its blood on the doorposts of your house, and then the angel of death would pass over. And that's where we get the feast of the Passover. And so this is what is happening. This is the context of that quote. It's taken from Exodus chapter 13. 
What happened was, is God said this. Everyone, because of their sins, Jews and Egyptians alike, deserve to be judged. But he says, I will preserve you if you kill a lamb in substitution for your firstborn children, males. But I just want you to know this, that even though I will spare the life of your firstborn male children because of the blood of the lamb, they will be mine. They will be mine. Those children will belong to me. And so what happened was is shortly thereafter, after they left the land of Egypt and escaped the wrath of God through the Passover by the blood of the lamb. And of course, all that symbolism points to Jesus. They wandered through the desert, camped at Mount Sinai. And then before, right before they entered into or tried to enter the promised land before their 40 year walk, they they re- We're also given another law where God says, what I'm going to do is, is instead of taking all of your firstborn male children to serve me in the temple, I am going to take the entire tribe of Levi. And these, this whole tribe is going to be dedicated to serve me. But your firstborn male children will need to be redeemed. And so when they are born, you bring them to the temple or the tabernacle at that time. You bring them to the temple. You you dedicate them to the Lord and then you pay five shekels and you redeem them and purchase them. So you can have them back from the Lord. The money then would go to the Levites who would then serve in substitution of the redeemed firstborn. And this, of course, is all the picture of Jesus who would come as the Lamb of God, whose blood would redeem us from our sin. And so that is what's happening right here. All of these things are, are happening in the text. Not only did Mary have to wait for her time of purification, but after the time of purification, they then named Jesus according to what the angel said. And then they had him circumcised according to the law of Moses. And then they came and presented him to the Lord. That doesn't mention this, but at that time they would give five shekels. He would be redeemed. Those five shekels would go to the Levites who would then serve the Lord instead of the firstborn male. And that is what's happening in the text. And not only that, one other thing happens. And if you look down, you'll see this. In verse 24, Luke also mentions that they brought these sacrifices. Luke says they came to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What's this talking about? Again, same text, Leviticus 12, but in verses 6 through 8, what's happening in that text is they said when a woman has a child, Daughter, son, doesn't matter. She needs to go after the days of her purification to the temple and offer a sacrifice. One was a sin offering. Another was a burnt offering. And the sin offering was to be a lamb. The burnt offering, a pigeon or a turtle dove. There was a provision. If you were so poor, you couldn't afford a lamb. Then what you could do is you could offer up two turtle doves or two pigeons. And this was God's gracious provision because anybody could get turtle doves and pigeons. You know, pigeons are, you know, you think that when you go to the airport or go to public places, all those pigeons walking around the ground that, you know, those are new. Well, those aren't new. 
They even have them in Israel. And, uh, you know, they were eating all the Jewish popcorn or whatever people dropped at the, at that time. Anyways, those, those pigeons were always around just like they are today. And not only that, doves were in the country about half the year. They came through and people could make a little simple trap, you know, put some seed and catch a dove if they needed to try and do that. And so people would catch doves and people could, for a very small amount of money, even purchase one so that they could offer them up as a sacrifice. What this tells us though is is that Joseph and Mary were very poor. They couldn't even afford a lamb. I mean, they had to lay Jesus in a stable, uh, a feeding trough after they gave birth to him. And when they finally got to the temple, you know, their five shekels was probably all they had. And they only had enough left for two little birds. And so they offered those up according to the law of Moses. What is all of this teach us it teaches us that jesus even from a very young age was the holy one of god everything about his life was right he didn't sin and his parents didn't sin his parents did every single thing that was supposed to be done according to the law of moses and that's why luke is going into this great detail because later on we're going to see that jesus never sinned in his adult life either but he wants to establish the simple fact that jesus even from a very young age fulfilled every single detail of the law of moses and that is why in luke 135 it says uh, the angel told um, Mary that she would be she would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And for that reason, the holy child should be called the son of God. What holy means is separate from sin and devoted unto God. And that's who Jesus was separate from sin. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 4:15. for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Later on, he says in chapter 7, verse 26, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy and innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Peter in first Peter chapter two, verse 22, speaking of Christ's ultimate example of holiness, quotes Isaiah 53, nine, which says who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was perfect. He was sinless. Why? He had to be if he was going to be a sacrifice for the sins of men. You see, in the Old Testament, they offered up all these animal sacrifices in anticipation for the once for all sacrifice of Christ. See, if you're going to make atonement, if you're going to redeem somebody, you have to pay the same amount. So if I am going to redeem a lame, mangled, three-legged dog, I need a whole perfect one. Because you cannot redeem something unless it, you have something of equal value. And so if you are going to take a sinful human and redeem them and make atonement for them, you must offer up a perfect human in substitution. And that is why Jesus had to be the Holy One. And that is why Luke spends all of this time. If he was a sinner, he wouldn't have been God because God cannot sin. If he was a sinner, he couldn't be a savior. If he was a sinner, he couldn't make atonement. If he was a sinner, he wouldn't be the Holy One of God, would he? No. And so Jesus, even from his birth, even from eight days old, had all the law of Moses fulfilled in his life while he passively waited for his parents to do all of these things. 
And so we learn from these two first um, sections that Jesus is God's salvation for you. And Jesus is God's holy one for you. Now let's look and see what we can learn from Simeon. This is our third point. Simeon is your example of what it means to wait for the Lord. We have learned that the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. The first promise of the Messiah was made to Eve and then all of the people all the way down through the ages. And they'd been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And they were waiting for this seed of the woman, the the righteous branch of David, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace to come on the scene. They didn't know when he was going to come, but they had hope. And so they just waited in line like those people at the computer store. The people in the computer store had hope that they would finally get into the store where these people had hope that was more sure because it was based on the word of God. Joseph and Mary bring Jesus into the temple to fulfill the law of Moses and all of its different aspects. And look at verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. I'll just stop there for a moment. Do you notice anything about the characters in the Christmas story? Do you notice the kind of people God's using? Zacharias and Elizabeth If you look at the text says earlier in Luke chapter one, verse six, that they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments of the Lord. Mary is referred to in Luke one, 28 and 30 as the favored one because of her humble piety. And Matthew one, 19, Joseph is referred to as the righteous man. Here, Simeon is referred to as righteous and devout. Following, we'll meet a a lady named Anna, an older lady who is in the temple, serving in the temple night and day with fasting and prayers. And the whole point is this. God uses people who walk according to his word. You know, some people say, well, you know, God's just not using me. Well, are you walking in obedience to his word? God wants to use polished swords and clean vessels. And if that doesn't describe you, then that's probably why he's not using you. A lot of times we think, well, you know, I wish God would do something. Well, he's wishing you would do something. You know, when you reach into the cupboard and all of a sudden there's a cup there that has a bunch of dried goo on it from the dishwasher. Do you use that one? Or do you use the clean one next to it? You take the gooey one and you what? You put it back in the sink and run it through again. God wants to use clean vessels. And that's what we see here. All of these people are godly. All of these people are following the Lord. It doesn't mean they're perfect. Of course, they're not perfect. But God makes provision for people who aren't perfect, right? They had the sacrificial system. We have the blood of Jesus. God knows you're not perfect. Everybody knows that. But God wants you to pursue righteousness. He wants you to walk according to his word. And it is those kind of people, like the people we see in the text, that God used at this time when he was doing incredible deeds around the birth of Jesus. The text continues in the middle of verse 25. Look there. And here we learn that Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. That phrase consolation of Israel just means for the Messiah to come. And it says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
Now, we have learned already that the Holy Spirit worked in a different way in the Old Testament, not like he does in believers in the church. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came upon people for periods of time to empower them for certain deeds. And here, the Holy Spirit, it says, came upon this man, Simeon. Now, a lot of times people say that Simeon was an older man, but the text doesn't actually say that Uh, after He sees Jesus. He says, I can die now, but it doesn't mean he's old. We don't know how old he is. We don't know if he was a priest or a prophet. It just says there was a man named Simeon. And what's interesting here is he was looking for, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Well, why is that? Well, let's just say you're a single young man and God says, you know, I have a perfect wife for you and you're going to meet her at the L.A. airport. And that's all he tells you. Well, that's a bummer, isn't it? There's a lot of people at the L.A. airport. And you can go down there and walk around all day long and not even begin to see a fraction of the people who are going in and out. And so how would you meet that perfect wife if God says you're going to meet her at the airport? Because you don't know when to go. Even if you spend eight hours a day there wandering around, good chances are you're going to miss her. And so what do you do? Well, that's what's going on here. Because what happened is, is he was not only looking for the consolation of Israel, but look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that the, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, which is the Greek term for Messiah. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus to carry out for him, the custom of law. And I just stopped there. What's happening here is God is guiding Simeon so that he makes contact with Joseph and Mary. Simeon is probably sitting home having a cup of coffee. And all of a sudden he thinks to himself, you know, I think I'm going to go to the temple now. And Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem. Well, let's, walk, you know, the five mile trek to Jerusalem. And so they are going to Jerusalem and Simeon's going to Jerusalem and Simeon gets to the temple because the Holy spirit is guiding him. And just as he gets there and just as Joseph and Mary get there, voila, out of all the people in the temple, he encounters Jesus and his parents. And that's what's happening here. The spirit is guiding him so that he could see the Lord's Christ before his death. And see, this was promised, wasn't it? We saw this in Malachi chapter three, verse one, when the prophet Malachi, you know, some 400 years earlier said that God was going to send a messenger to clear the way before the Lord. And then the Lord would suddenly appear in his temple. So what's happening. The fulfillment of Malachi 3.1. And what's amazing here is Jesus shows up and he's, you know, doesn't have this big royal train and doesn't have a bunch of people waving palm branches. There's just two poor people, Joseph and Mary, bringing their little bundle to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord and redeem him with the five shekels according to the law of Moses and to offer up the sacrifice that they had to offer up. And Simeon is being guided so that he intercepts them just when they get to the temple. And he had been waiting for this. God told him he was going to see. And, you know, that would just be like 
God speaking to you, you're, you're going to meet your wife at the L.A. airport. And then one day you just have to go pick somebody up at the airport. And you get out and park your car and walk up and you're trying to figure out where to go in. And all of a sudden there's this woman who meets your eyes. Who? That's going to be your wife. Well, in this case, Simeon sees Jesus and he knows who Jesus is. And he's been waiting for Jesus. And the people of God had been waiting for Jesus for thousands of years. And, you know, you and I, we look at this, we go, well, you know, Jesus already came. You're right. He already came the first time, but he's coming again. And we need to be like Simeon in this regard. And we need to be waiting for Jesus. You know, what's interesting is, is, is when you look at the history and you look at how God does things, he often does things in sevens. And there was about 4,000 years until Christ was born. And some people think there's going to be about 2,000 years and then he's going to come back again. And that is why when Y2K happened and everybody was storing water and grain and heirloom seeds. Generators. Anybody have a generator for sale? Um, all those people were getting ready. And a lot of people thought, you know, Jesus is going to come back then. The problem is, is the Bible says we don't know the day or hour, but it doesn't say we don't know the general time. So people are saying, yeah, we, you know, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to be in the year 2000. The problem is, as we learned last week, our calendar is off what? Four or five years, the Gregorian calendar, which means that 2000 years is really not going to be until about 2004 or 2005. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is going to come back then. All I'm saying is it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus told his disciples in Mark 13 too, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the son. In Thessalonians chapter five, verse two, the apostle Paul speaking to the Thessalonians says, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Peter says the same thing in second Peter three ten, and John, the apostle says the same thing in revelation three, three, a thief in the night. And believe me, when the thief is going to rob your house, he doesn't send you a telegram. You know, I want you to know at midnight on such and such a day, I'm going to come rob your house. They always come unexpectedly when you don't expect it. That is what they have going for them. That's all they have going for them. The element of surprise where hopefully they will come. You know, you ask yourself, why, why, why do you, Lock your doors at nighttime. I mean, why don't you just leave your front door open? Because there might be a bad person coming by. And so you lock your doors every night. Why? In anticipation of the night that someone is going to come by and they're going to grab the knob and see if it's open. I keep telling my wife, oh, we don't need to do that. Sometimes when my wife's in there, I don't lock the doors. (laughs) Does that scare you? I think that's it's pretty fun. <laughs> I've just never been a door locker. I mean, I just think to myself, listen, if I wanted to get in your house, I'd kick in the window. And then you'd have a broken window and I'd still be in your house. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe I'm, uh, you know, I don't know. We won't go there anymore. But... Uh, 
Yeah, I don't know. I always thought uh, locking doors was kind of silly when your house was full of glass. I mean, if you lived in a, you know, block cube or something, I guess it would be reasonable. But anyways, when somebody's coming and you think that they're going to rob you, you prepare, right? You prepare for their eventual or possible coming. Well, that is the same thing you need to be doing. Simeon was waiting for Jesus and you need to wait for Jesus because he's not going to come back a first time. He's going to come back a second time and he's not going to come back as a little baby. He's going to be coming back in glory like lightning from the east is from the west. The judge of heaven and earth. The scriptures say dealing out retribution to those who do not love the love of the uh, do not love the truth so as to be saved. He is coming back in glory. At an hour, you do not expect. That means any time, like right now. Think about that right now. Or maybe I say at the end of the service, okay, you're dismissed and you're dismissed. (laughs) All of a sudden, Christ comes back and you're in his presence. In a moment, the scriptures say, in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ shall be raised and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together and meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord at any moment at any time. And this is why Paul praised the Corinthians who were waiting eagerly for the second coming. It's why Paul says in second Timothy four, eight, that there is a crown of righteousness waiting for all those who love Christ's appearing. That's why Paul said to Titus in Titus 2.13 that they needed to be pursuing godliness, to deny all ungodliness, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That is the hope of Christians. And this is just a sampling of such statements. People who love Jesus can't wait for him to come back. Can't wait for him to set up his kingdom and get rid of wickedness. And that is why the scriptures say, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on the thing as above. Keep your eyes fixed on the coming of Christ. And though we do not know the day or hour, we know that he's coming back for sure because the word of God said so. The Jews had to wait 4,000 years. How long do we have to wait? I don't know. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe in 100 years. I don't know. But it's going to happen. But you know, what's interesting is, is the Bible does give us some clues. Jesus in the sermon on the uh, or the Olivet discourse when he was preaching his sermon about the end uh, of the age the disciples came to him and said Lord what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age do you remember what he said he said there would be many false teachers who would arise and deceive many true today absolutely He said, not only that, there would be wars and rumors of wars. Ever heard of those? Absolutely. He said there would be famines and earthquakes. Yesterday, as I was typing this out, my wife got the paper and said, 20,000 people died in an earthquake in Iran. Jesus said lawlessness will increase. True? More than ever. He said people's love would grow cold. True? True? More than ever. He said the gospel would be preached to all nations. True? More than ever. Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, 
wanted him to also be prepared for the end times. And so he said, Timothy, I want you to know this about the last times. And listen what he said here. Whenever I read this, it's, it's a commentary on our day. He said this, but realize this for in the last days, difficult times will come for men will be lovers of self. You ever been sitting there at the grocery store waiting to get your groceries? You look down and there's self magazine. And the woman on the front is not dressed very appropriately. So you turn to the other counter where you see money magazine. And that's the next thing he says for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutals, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. This is a great one here. Uh, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. That is, they try and be religious with, by rejecting Jesus. And then in verse 13, he says, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And if that isn't a commentary in our day and age, I don't know what is. Nothing needs to happen before Jesus can come back. We're ripe for the second coming. He could come back any Moment, And the point is this, be ready, be ready. If you don't know Jesus, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to realize he died in the cross for your sins. He bore your sins upon his body. He died your death in your place so that through faith in him, he could give you his perfect righteousness, not based on your good works, but on his good works. Divine merit, salvation by divine accomplishment, not your good works, God's good works. And when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ in humble repentance, turning from your sin, committing your life to him, he washes you clean. He forgives you of every sin. He changes your life. He makes you new. He promises you unimaginable glory in heaven forever and ever things which eye has not seen or ear heard or entered in the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul said that the sufferings of this present world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in the saints. God's not up there thinking, oh, what am I going to do? They're all going to be sitting on clouds forever. You will be learning for all eternity. You will be talking with all the saints and all the angels for all eternity. You will be exploring a new heavens, a new earth and learning and growing and doing things that are unimaginable. You can't even imagine it. It's so great. And if you already know Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior, make sure that today you're living In such a way that if he were to right now come back and snatch you up into his presence, you would not be ashamed. And this thought should be in your mind all day long, every day. When you're working, when you're playing, when you're reading, whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, you ask yourself. Now, if right now at this very moment, if Jesus were to snatch me up and I were to instantly be standing before him in his presence. Would I be ashamed of what I'm doing now? 
That's what you need to ask yourself. Be ready for Jesus is coming. And you may say, well, Jack, you know, everybody thought Jesus was going to come back in their generation. True. But I'll tell you this. We're one day and one moment closer than yesterday. And I'll also tell you this, that even if he doesn't come back while you live on this planet in your earthly body, you're still going to stand before him. Right? I mean, the death rate is still holding at 100%. And you are going to die and you will stand before the Lord of glory. So you're going to meet him. He's either going to come back and take you to himself or you're going to die and go to be with him. And so be ready, live your life today, not in light of just temporary things and pleasure than, you know, doing everything for yourself, but thinking about others and serving others and living for the Lord. I mean, he, he wants you to be happy. He wants you to be blessed, but he also wants you to do all these things for his glory so that when you stand before him, whether he comes or you die, you won't be ashamed. Simeon was waiting for the Lord. Not only that, Simeon blessed the Lord. And he is our example in this area, too. Look at verse 28. Joseph and Mary bring Jesus into the temple. God's spirit moves Simeon into place, so they make contact. Then in verse 28, the text says, Then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And, you know, we're going to learn about this in a couple of weeks, but... Just imagine what Mary is thinking. I mean, everywhere Mary and Joseph go, everybody seems to know more about their child than they do. You know, here they are. They're, they're, they're in Bethlehem and they give birth to a child and they're trying to, you know, make do with the feeding trough. And all of a sudden these shepherds come and know all about their baby. And now they're just wandering to just do the law of Moses thing. They don't know anything about Simeon. They get there. They're trying to get up there to do what they have to do to offer the sacrifice and dedicate him to the Lord and give the five shekels and whatever. And here Simeon intercepts and grabs their child. The salvation of Israel. Isn't that great? I mean, he's been waiting. He's been longing. I went to... uh, Russia, you know, you, I stayed with this missionary couple and they had two boys that were about my age and it was kind of painful because, you know, I see those boys and I kind of miss my boys and my girl too, but they had two boys. And so, you know, they, and I watch them and I go, you know, they're just like my boys. They act just like my boys. And so after 10 days, you get in the plane, you fly back. And then all of a sudden your kids run out and say, dad. And you just want to just do what? You just want to grab them and just, and just you know, until their head pops off. <laughs> and then that is what's happening here. Simeon has been waiting and waiting and he sees Mary and Joseph and just give me that child. And he just holds Jesus up and then he starts saying these incredible things about him. You know, uh, you know, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Which you have prepared for all the people. A light to the Gentiles. A quotation of Isaiah 9-2. And the glory of your people Israel. Why is he the glory of your people Israel? Because he was prophesied by the Jews. He was predicted by the Jewish prophets. The Jewish scriptures spoke of him. The Jews as a nation hoped in him. And now he had finally came a Jew from the Jews. 
the very Shekinah glory embodied in the, this little baby, the very salvation of the people of Israel. I mean, he hadn't even grown up yet. He hadn't even died on the cross yet. All they knew is Simeon knew this was the baby. This was the baby. And so Simeon blesses God. And here he is an example for all of us. Because we can praise God and bless him for the same reason Simeon did and many others. We not only know everything Simeon knew at that time, we know everything else in the Gospels and everything else in the New Testament and everything else that has happened good in all the history since that time. We have no excuse not to be praising God and thanking God and worshiping God and singing songs to God like Simeon did. Because that's what God wants us to all do. He wants us to worship him and to think about him and to praise him and to tell other people about him. On the 11th anniversary of Charles Wesley's conversion, he was talking to a friend who said, Oh, brother Wesley, the Lord has done so much for my life. Had I a thousand tongues... I would praise Christ Jesus with every one of them. And he thought about that. And he went into his room. And he penned a hymn that is very well known to us. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace, my gracious master and my God assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors of thy name, Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come and leap ye lame for joy. What a great hymn. And expresses the very joy that every single believer should have because of the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the at any time coming of Christ. So this morning as you leave here, I hope you are praising God for sending you a Savior, praising God for having Jesus be the Holy One, that you would learn the lessons of waiting and wait in holiness so that when Jesus does appear or you go to be with Him, you will not be ashamed And finally, that you would spend your days and your nights thinking and praising God for all that he has given you and family and friends and Jesus and salvation and all of those good things we have that oftentimes we take for granted. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this text and we thank you, Father, just for the way that... uh, Luke has penned in just a very short section of scripture so many good truths. Some of them we weren't even able to look at in detail. Father, I just ask that you would help us all learn the lessons from this text, that Jesus is our Savior, that he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And that, Father, he is willing to save all those who come to him in faith, turning from their sins and receiving him. Father, I also ask that you would um, just help us all, Father, just to live in a way that brings you honor and glory, knowing that you could come back at any time for us. 
And Father, we also ask that you would help us to be worshipers of you and praise you with our thoughts, with our mouth, because you alone are worthy. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.